Today's presenting sponsor is Datadog. If your business is being driven by software, you know today's applications are more complex than ever. They're sitting on multiple layers of infrastructure and distributed services, and it can be very complicated to manage. Datadog brings visibility into every part of your infrastructure, as well as APM monitoring for your application's performance. Customizable dashboards, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems, from Amazon Web Services to Kubernetes to MySQL, so you can get visibility in minutes. You want to get started now? Go to datadog.com slash cloudcast to get started with Datadog and get a free t-shirt. Datadog is trusted by thousands of enterprises, so if you haven't tried Datadog at your company or on your side project, go to datadog.com slash cloudcast to try it out and get a free t-shirt. And now, on with the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to The Cloudcast, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, folks, we've uh, we talked about a lot of different things, and, and at the end of the day, it's it's always important sometimes to come back to to the basics, which is um, you know people are trying to build applications. They want to get them into production very quickly, and when they're in production, they want them to run. They want them to run seamlessly. They don't want to hear complaints from people about either you know poor performance or unavailability. And so it's important for us sometimes to come back to to operations, uh, looking at operations, but but more importantly, looking at kind of the evolution of operations. What does that mean from an infrastructure perspective, from an operations perspective? And so uh, excited to have back on the show, Rob Hirschfeld, a good friend of the show. Rob, welcome back. Brian, thank you. I'm excited to be back. Favorite podcast, so excellent, excellent. Well, you and I, uh, we were together. We we're out at Interop a couple of weeks ago, out in Vegas, and uh, had a really good, long sort of hallway conversation. And we thought we would bring a little bit of that to the show um, and and dive into you know not only some of those topics. Um, you know, we want to dive into SRE, kind of the SRE overlap with DevOps. Uh, you know, all those things, but but you know, also get a sense of, of uh, you know what you're working on these days because it's been a little while. So why don't we start with this new concept, um, and it's maybe not a new concept in general, but maybe for this for this podcast, this idea of SRE or site reliability engineering. Like, give folks the basics because you've been talking about it a lot. What what is it? What does it mean? And um, you know, maybe where where did it evolve from? Boy, it's a fun topic to talk about because it was one of those things that I felt like I've been doing SRE work, site reliability engineering, uh, for my whole career. And Google wrote this book uh, that sort of popped into uh, the norms defining how they run their infrastructure. And I'm like, wow, that means exactly what I do. Um, And then it all got confusing after that, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But um, SRE has been around for a long time as a site reliability engineering um, track. There's there's conferences for it. It's something that's, that's pretty well established but had been really established, meaning keeping a website running, logging and monitoring and, and performance checking. And Google sort of pulled that concept because, you know, obviously they want to keep their site moving, but they took this very DevOpsy system level thinking approach to it and went all the way down to the silicon and said, how do we change our site reliability, you know, looking at the whole system from our data centers, our power structure, Right, how we build machines, how we operate them, how we install data centers, the whole gamut all the way through to the user experience. And that is where 
to me, site reliability really changed. They changed the definition of how people have been talking about it um, in a way that really resonates with DevOps teams, but is different than what DevOps sort of says. It's aligned and different at the same time. Okay, so let's let's sort of break down the, the basics of it then. So, what are the maybe what are the core principles of, of SRE, and then maybe you know wh- where do they differ from maybe the kind of the core principles of DevOps? So, core principles they're totally totally the same, which is what's awesome. the The thing that that is different is that DevOps communities really work hard on culture and process and, and cross team integration and breaking down silos. All these wonderful you know, lean process concepts. SRE is really a job function that's focused on operations and automation around those operations. So it's it's more like if you want to think about the factory floor and running the factory, SREs are like running the factory where DevOps is really saying, you know what, our, our developers and our, our operators need to work together and they need to design things so that you go from desktop and concept all the way through to production in a continuous cycle. That's very DevOpsy. SRE loves that that idea, but like you had said at, at the opening, somebody that stuff just needs to run. Developers don't want to be you know shoveling coal into the engine to make sure that the Kubernetes platform is running and the operating systems are patched and the load balancer is right and the firewall is up to date. Those actions, which are essential to operations and essential to site reliability, right, the reliability of your infrastructure, those fall into a job domain that's site reliability engineering. And over the last couple, couple actually over the last year, but more in the last couple months, we've really gotten to this no ops and serverless thing where developers like, yeah, make all that stuff go away. They don't mean make it go away so that it doesn't exist. What they're saying is make it go away from my job. Let it be somebody else's job. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's, that's where we, there's this incredible synergy between DevOps and SRE, but there's also this incredible split where we're starting to say, you know what, developers shouldn't do ops jobs. It's a different different mentality yeah uh, yeah i kind of feel like and this is the way in my mind that i break it down and, and tell me maybe where it's where it's right or wrong so you know I, I feel like devops um was was sort of the at the core of devops is this idea that that there's this sort of impedance mismatch between how fast developers can can build software potentially test it and and want to throw it over the wall right so they've got a they've got a pace at which they move and they've got a certain set of tools that they use you know source code and and jenkins and all this stuff and and devops was at its at its core sort of saying hey ops isn't prepared to deal with that pace of change um and it also doesn't use those same tools so there's not this kind of um you know synergy and and community and all that stuff and then the SRE thing really sort of says, okay, let's assume that Dev and Ops sort of could operate at the same pace. In, in theory, um, what what would operations then look like such that you know people aren't the bottleneck, right? How do I automate things? How do I measure what I've automated? Um, how, you know, all, all those sort of sort of things that are, like you said, sort of much more about you know how do I you know kind of factory floor what this operations process looks like? Is that in the ballpark, or is it? Is there still a lot more going on there? I really like the way you're describing that. Um, that's actually an interesting segue for me to, um, you know, give some background on what I'm doing and yeah. why we're doing it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we we see a crisis, um, and I, I don't mean to, to to. I actually, I don't want to downplay it. It actually is a crisis. Um, and I, I had a blog post uh, in November about uh, described as this operation tsunami of technical debt. 
um, coming down the pipeline where operations hasn't seen the degree of innovation, the degree of automation, the degree of uniformity that is required for us to stop manually automating process, right? When, when we see, so my company, RackN, uh, runs an open source project called Digital Rebar that's designed to create site-to-site automation, right? So we believe that operators need to find ways to have much more repeatable processes, not just within their own sites, but site-to-site so that they can show up in an operations meetup and actually share learnings, share process, share repeatable, repeatable actions uh, on their own process. Because otherwise, we're just going to run everything into a SaaS and it'll become a black box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that's where things should go. I think it's an important intermediate but we should be able to create operational best practices that work site to site, company to company. Um, in some ways, that's where uh, – it's not in some ways. In many ways, I feel like that's where OpenStack sort of ran aground, right? We, we didn't end up with common operational practices around OpenStack. And so we ended up with this expensive consulting practice where a lot of people had to um, – learn how to do it all by themselves and what they learned they couldn't share or couldn't repeat. Um, and now we have people running around saying the only way to run OpenStack is as a managed service, um, which is a failure to me of, of building good software. Um, yeah. So, so right. And then, so I'm going to put down the shiny object of OpenStack for a second, um, but come back. What, what Racken has done is, is this software we've built decomposes operations into small units that you can then put, piece together so that if somebody has Dell servers and somebody has HP and somebody has uh, Supermicro or Lenovo or whatever brand they want or if they're building their own servers, uh, those changes in infrastructure don't break how you operate the infrastructure, right? You can have your own naming schemes or IP address strategies or, or layer two boundaries. All these, all these operational needs that often break on-premises and co-load infrastructure, those changes need to be abstracted in a way that, that operating OpenStack or Kubernetes or Ceph or whatever cluster Mesos you want to do, those operational practices can be isolated so the software runs in a consistent way. Yeah. And, Oof, and, I need to take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I feel like, you know, um, there, we, we have this, so that I think one of these challenges, so people talk a lot about you know, I want to build software faster. I want to do these things. And, and there's lots of debates about, you know, OpenStack or Kubernetes or, or Docker or which tools to use or all these sort of things. And, and I feel like if we if we sort of bring this back to first principles, and I think this is sort of this, the crisis that you're getting at is, is this idea of like, let, let's let's put this into focus. So, you know, if you're an infrastructure person, right, uh, you know, way back in the day, you managed bare metal. Eventually, you got into virtualization. You know, virtualization, something like VMware uh, would would release software about once every year. And and if you updated the software once a year, like you were you were a champion. And and then OpenStack came along and and OpenStack was releasing software every six months as, you know, a big bundle of stuff. So but but half the you know sort of twice the frequency. And now you have things like let's say Kubernetes um, or you know a lot of the, the newer infrastructure type technology coming out every three months. So again, this idea of of you know doubling the pace at which the thing you have to deal with is, is coming out. And I feel like to a certain extent, what what hasn't really happened, and I think this is the the best practices you're talking about, is the, you know people haven't sort of said like how do I just even take care of my own house if I'm operations? Like how do I just make sure that if I went from VMs to containers, I know how to even just update that stuff. Like how do I upgrade it, update it, 
and and figure out the best practices just around frequently updating infrastructure software that de- right. it's a skill that people really have to get good at is that i mean is that kind of the the crux of this crisis you're talking about that's it's a big part of it um it's what what i usually describe as underlay automation so it, the, the the thing that that blows people's minds is that you just described this incredible acceleration we're seeing in versioning, mm-hmm. but we're also compositing software in ways that we haven't compo- done before. So it's not just that Kubernetes has a three-month cycle. Kubernetes is built on Docker, which is not version-aligned with Kubernetes. Sure. It's built on Linux, which is not version aligned. It's has, going to have an SDN layer, which isn't version aligned, and a storage layer that's not version aligned. And it's going to have all these components in it. So, you know, we could sort of, you know, collect, connect all these things and say every three months we're going to make all these changes. But some of those are security patches and fixes and things like that. So when you look at, you know, a Kubernetes cadence, you could almost say, wow, there's a weekly update path in this mix. Um, which should make everybody's head explode. And it's, it's not quite that bad, but I think we need to be taking a defensive posture, assuming it is. Uh, and then I didn't even touch, you know, Raiden BIOS configurations and security postures and key rotations and uh, the, the sort of the really hard things that you have to do at an operations level, multi-system, uh, to say, oh, wait a second, I need to redistribute uh, my digital certificates and then put new... Uh, public-private key pairs all over my infrastructure on a weekly rotation basis to secure it. Oh my goodness! Uh, you know, and, and I'm saying that, and if if people are thinking, "Wow, that's I, I wouldn't even do that," or I'm, "I'm not there yet," we need to get to a point from an ops perspective that that type of hygiene is is automatic. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I think that's the that's the key point, right? It can't be, you know, it's it's just like. Um, and, and people will say this is a bad example, but it's just like sort of patch management, right? It, it, whether you whether you you keep up to date with patches or not, like let's say on an OS or something, there we're we're well past the days of somebody running around to every single box and and plugging in a CD or or even just log. I mean, like there are tools that that you know have the hygiene to do that sort of once a week patch tuesday patch management sort of style or cbe style stuff you're you're getting it we've got to be able to do that for sort of the infrastructure as a whole um and and have the mindset of saying what are those automated tools to help me make that happen it it's it's has to be a system level concern and practice um and and it has to be api driven it has to become more autonomic and it can't be done on a site by site team by team basis right we we need to and this is what what racken's trying to do we're we're trying to help people have this conversation at the very foundational levels and then create repeatable process over and over and over again um yeah so let, we can we can talk about what makes that really hard <laughs> yeah or we can go other places too well let, let's just let's start with let, let's keep this fairly fairly simple so uh you engage with somebody and they they you know you engage with a company and they say hey uh rob i agree with you it's a challenge uh you know and and we have to take on this challenge because our developers you know let's say they they love building their applications now with docker and packaging them with docker so containers are going to be part of our world whatever that expands to like what are the first sort of basic steps that that you engage, you know, that you tell people like this is what you need to do, this is what you need to evaluate. Like what, you know, what's the what, what's the what's the baby steps? And that's that's actually has been one of our big realizations for this is that we had started from uh 
this idea that you needed the whole integrated suite, right, all the way up upgrades and patches and things like that. And we found that was actually much too hard for people. They 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 were they were getting indigestion trying to eat that pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the baby steps for us are boot pixie provision. Okay. Um, and, and we're actually tearing apart the big digital rebar infrastructure we've built and starting back into, I just need better, what we call cloud native control. So restful API driven control of my infrastructure at a fundamental boot provision stage. Um, because that drives into all the sorts of interesting immutable infrastructure stories um, where people don't even install operating systems. They just boot and install a temporary operating system. Um, or it just moves into these better hygiene stories. But if, if you don't have that base level control, everything else is harder because you're, you're building up, up, up the stacks all the way through. And so what we've been working to do is decouple those pieces into, into more automatable automatable units that you can then stack um just like everybody i mean it's the same story that everybody else has right we're trying to find these clean boundaries um you you might think ah what does that have to do with physical infrastructure and booting i don't care but we're doing the same thing at the kubernetes level right we're trying to create nice clean boundaries between layers of infrastructure so that you can have handoffs right but we started with sres SREs are just, you know, their job would be to run a Kubernetes infrastructure with all the storage and networking backends completely back black boxed and isolated from developers. So they don't care. You, you have to sort of build that up in your infrastructure layer by layer. Okay. So let's, let's, let's break that apart, sort of uh, the, the people and process side versus the, the technology side. So, so let's say uh, you're talking to, you're, you're engaged with the company and they say, hey, you know, we, we don't call our people SREs. They're, you know, that's, that's our ops team. What are the what are the basic sort of like say jobs not necessarily titles but like what jobs or functions that that they need to say I, I'm I'm allocating this this thing right that this this has to get done this is a job a task that has to get done ah uh, boy so I, I'm, I'm I want to I'm going to give you a parenthetical rant for a sure. second sure um, just naming changing the name of your ops teams to SREs does yeah, not doesn't matter don't do don't do that as well no it does matter. Because SREs have some very specific things that people who are who are like, oh, I'm going to rebrand my ops team as, or my IT admins is, or my DevOps team as SREs. S- SREs include pay equity. They include development chops, automation skills. There's there's you know there's a whole other conversation about that. Okay. Um, that's important. So right, if you're just renaming your ops team to be an SRE team to sound cool in all Silicon Valley, hold back um, because there's there's things that you want to accomplish in making your ops team equal in in merit to your development team to create this SRE balance. Right, parent, close parentheses, <laughs> rant over. <laughs> um, the, the things that we find are really hard is that most organizations are incredibly siloed. And so when we, when we talk to companies that are trying to create this more automated approach and in infrastructure – they, they typically have a networks team and they have a, a server admin install team. They have an operating system team. They have a um, chef puppet Ansible team, right? They have – it's those, – those silos um, get in the way of this type of, of automation really, really quickly. Um, and frankly, a lot of the engagements we've had, there have been sort of this well, – we – they don't always have the title of SRE, but they have this DevOps change agent type um, mentality. They get brought in, 
they hit these siloed, fractured, in, in, um, you know, operational environments, and frankly, a lot of them quit. They don't make it in the job because those those the antibodies to changing, you know, oh, I can't change my cobbler infrastructure out because we have years of crust in there, uh, and then so we can't automate our our infrastructure on top of that. Um, that is a really hard thing to overcome because there's production systems depending on it. It's very hard to change production systems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so definitely something for, for companies to be considering is, um, you know, it, it may not be for everybody or it may require this idea that, that I've got to bring in some, some new types of talent to, to help augment and, and, and demonstrate to people. Let's and, and, and allow them to make change and get their job done. Yeah. Let's let's flip let's flip over on the on the technology side. Obviously, you know you guys are, are are building some tools and frameworks. But if if somebody has I don't know, let's say Ansible or something else, you know that they they already use as something like a config management tool. They kind of think about that as their you know one mm-hmm. of their operational go tos. Like our other our our existing our current existing tools kind of still pluggable into this framework, or is this a a, a start over type of thing? They they have to be. Pluggable. It's a. It was a core design requirement for us, um, and for anybody working with this, anybody who shows up and says, "Hey, throw out the tools you've got. I've got a new DSL for you, or I've got a new something," isn't really helping operators solve their problems um, because operators are running infrastructure. They're not. There's no such thing as a greenfield. Even when we were doing early OpenStack. We'd show up with new servers, but we wouldn't show up with a new IP strategy or a new naming strategy or a new um, uh, out-of-band management and time and DNS. All those, all that infrastructure still has to work. Um, and that includes Ansible, Chef, Puppet, Salt, Bash Scripts. Um, you know, all, those, all that is operational knowledge, and you don't want to disrupt that. You don't want to come in with a new way of doing things for people. This is actually part of my frustration on the Kubernetes on Kubernetes side. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan that we, we need to be able to have Ansible playbooks that work keep working uh, yep. because they do useful stuff. Rewriting them is not a value add. If we're talking about technical debt and I tell you to go rewrite all of your operational scripts to conform to something new, you're, it's, it's an undoable thing. Um, now, I'm not saying that all of your scripts are beautiful, pristine works of art that are gonna that shouldn't be changed. What I've seen is there's a lot of technical debt accumulated in those scripts because they had to code around limitations in the system. So, sure. uh, there's there's a degree of rethinking, but not disposing. Okay. Yeah, and it makes sense, and that, that sort of aligns with this idea that. Um, you know, to, to get to a better place, you're not going to, you know, it's the old, like, um, you know, you, you can't keep doing things the same way and expect to get a different result, uh, kind of, <laughs> kind of mindset. There, there's also a pathology in our industry where new and shiny is equals better. Yep. Um, and you know, I'll, a good example of this, uh, to me is the core OS now, now Linux OS or whatever they're, whatever they're calling it. Um, and there's a, a whole suite of these new lean in-memory boot operating systems. And they're really cool and they're good and they, they accomplish a purpose. But the reality is, is that you could take an existing Linux, strip it down to something simple, and use it in exactly the same way. There's, you know, and in that case, you actually have something people operators are used to using. That, you know, and so to me, it's, we, we want to be careful that we don't just say, oh, this is a, the better way to do it, convert everything over. 
what we want to be able to do is find more bridges for operators. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because because otherwise, what we're doing is we're just throwing something new at the operators. It's easy for developers; they just switch. But operators have to sustain the old; they have to bring in the new. And uh, you know, we're we're not doing a good job as an industry creating those bridges or finding the more incremental steps uh, for implementation. Yeah, I, we 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 have this. We have seem to have this fascination in our industry with with um, showing somebody how easy it is to demo something for for day one. And and yet nobody ever shows a demonstration of what day two hundred and seventy three looks like, or or something along those lines. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I the sad thing is I I see those demos. I do I do demos the day two demos. Um, they're they're. I wish I knew why they weren't working. Maybe people engage in Twitter. Please tell us why you think that those things aren't aren't is compelling, and how we make a day two demo compelling. Yep. Yep. Um, but they fall flat. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about um, actually, let's, let's talk about this, this other concept that we that we've hit on before. So um, th- there's this new fascination with this. Um, so you take something like Kubernetes. OK. Um, and this has been kicking around for a couple of years where you say, OK, so let's take something like Kubernetes. What is Kubernetes good at doing? It's good at taking a, a containerized application or set of containers that make up an application and uh, and go run them and run them in a way that that you can you can schedule them you can put upper and lower bounds on it it's very mm-hmm. good at saying hey if something falls down spin it back up again um and and so people are beginning to look at that and they're saying oh well you know not only would i run my my web facing application or my mobile facing application on there maybe i should run my infrastructure like an openstack or something on top of kubernetes uh, because hey, OpenStack is just a piece of software that that serves an application function, and we're starting to get into these sort of like layer cakes or sandwiches of stuff. Like, g- give me a sense of like wh- why is that happening, and and what what are the pros and cons of it? Wow! And and, ke- uh, and keep in mind, we try and keep this podcast to a certain amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh darn! Um, so. It blows people's minds the, the Kubernetes sandwich, as as we like to describe it. Um, running Kubernetes first as an underlay, then running OpenStack as an application on Kubernetes, and then running Kubernetes on top of that 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 that, that infrastructure as a service layer. Um, that to me gets a little bit a little bit crazy uh, from an inception point of view. Uh, I'm a big fan of Kubernetes on metal, but I'm also a big fan of saying the difference between virtualized infrastructure and physical infrastructure operationally sh- should drop to zero. That's what, what we're trying to do from a hybrid perspective. It's not like you're running a joint infrastructure as much as you're saying, when I operate metal, it shouldn't be any different than operating virtual machines through OpenStack or Amazon or Google or Azure or wherever. So once you sort of accept that statement, then something like Kubernetes can become a, a more universal underlay. Um, which to me is very threatening to what OpenStack's message is. Um, they've now now you start having to ask what is underlay, what is where's my application targeting. Um, I have to say before before I started all this, I thought that Kubernetes under OpenStack was was a joke. I actually uh, tried to coin the the description of it as the joint OpenStack Kubernetes environment. Um, that's how that's how jokey I thought it was. Uh, but you're right. The idea of OpenStack just being an application is entirely right. And as soon as people start containerizing OpenStack services, which is what we're talking about, Kubernetes is a really good way to run services. 
and you quickly get to the point of saying, well, wait a second, maybe I, maybe as an operator, I would rather run and maintain my Kubernetes, my OpenStack services using the Kubernetes platform. Um, that there's a, there's a place where this gets really hard. And it's the same place where running OpenStack on OpenStack gets really hard. If I want to run anything on metal, I actually have to be aware of the complexity of the metal. I have to be aware of the network and the NIC cards and the teams and bonds and where my network topology is going and how many disks I have and how they're configured. And, you know, out-of-band management, there's a whole bunch of of metal-specific stuff that you don't want to abstract away. You don't want to hide from, from an SRE, from an operator, because that's what makes tuning and running the system relevant. So the challenge that we're, we're seeing is you're entirely right. And, and I'm a, I've become a huge fan about this. I, I blog about it quite a bit. Um, I think that OpenStack should become a Kubernetes application. Um, there's some questions around what that would take. Happy to go there. However, to make that work, because OpenStack really is a physical infrastructure abstraction, you have to be able to inject a whole bunch of information about the physical infrastructure into that that topology. Uh, and that becomes a really interesting exercise because Kubernetes doesn't have the data either by design. Uh, and so you have to have some, some way to say, all right, I'm about to go run my OpenStack as an application on Kubernetes, but... I also need to know about my physical infrastructure and my network topology, my storage topology, and all this information has to get injected into that application so I can run it. And that's where we're playing right now. So we're, we're actively sort of working through that, that process. Yeah. And, and what, so just at a real high level, um, you know, to a certain extent, folks would say, well, you know, all that physical stuff kind of, uh, you know, it gets represented as as a cloud, and so I don't really have to think about NICs and clustered, you know, RAID and and buy and like how like what's at what point should you know? I understand the people that have to physically maintain physical boxes have to care about that, but at what point does that really have to be communicated up to an application, or do you just sort of say, give me I/O and give me give me you know bandwidth or something like? It, it, I'm trying to think of a simple way to sort of go like when, where does that need to be communicated? Where does a developer have to care about that or how much of it's just sort of like, well, it might be nice to know. Wow. So I'm going to give you a a really unsatisfying answer. Okay. Uh, You, you, you want to not care at all until you find yourself having to care. Yeah, sure. Sure. (laughs) And so, what what I see is, you know, 99% of developers, um, and myself included, when I'm in this mode, live in happy bliss as to what the underlying infrastructure is or how it's set up. And the, the more we can build something like Kubernetes where I don't care and I just say, I need to talk to this service, and it's, that's it, that's wonderful. And, yeah. oh, my God, that improves our efficiency and productivity and repeatability and portability, all these great abilities that, that we need to improve productivity it's amazing um so so does this just become sort of like advancements in things like kubernetes schedulers to be aware of a little more aware of what the underlying infrastructure is doing for me rather than just pods and cpu and memory i i don't think so because i think that you have a you have a real danger of making the kubernetes apis much more complex for the 99.9 percent use cases and what we're really trying to do is say, you know what, 
that's we're not that's not the problem where Kubernetes is trying to solve. And and this is where the kube on kube stuff starts. I start pushing back, and even the OpenStack on kube pieces, I, I'm going to push back a little bit and say, you know what, underlay is a thing. Actually, managing and figuring out how to build a network interface and then hand that off to Kubernetes so you can do the install or configure it. You know, configuration management is still a thing as much as it's taken a back seat to 12-factor apps and automatic deployments and kube, you know, uh, helm charts. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm giving a very Kubernetes-focused vocabulary, but, you know, these abstraction layers are really useful um, for most developers. The, the whole idea with SREs is there's still a class of people who need to care about Nick and raid card and t- network topology and, and IP addressing schemes and things like that. And that's okay. I, I'm very wary of them, of somebody trying to embed that in base Kubernetes just for the purpose of solving this specialized problem. Yeah. I, I saw the same problem with OpenStack. When, when triple O, this OpenStack on OpenStack concept surfaced um, way back in the Hong Kong summit, not Tokyo, Hong Kong, way back, um, the the idea that we would expose all of this very complex physical topology I- into OpenStack was actually a fail to the mission of what OpenStack was supposed to do, which is hide all that stuff because most people don't care. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think you highlight you highlight a couple of things, and I think we'll, we'll we'll sort of wrap it up on that one. It, it's uh, you know, be careful over designing. Uh, for you know your 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 one percent sort of five percent use case, you know, make sure that you're you're still very focused on on the bulk of what you're trying to do. You know, try and solve uh, you know challenges that 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 hit the, the biggest part of what you do, and don't take your your one or two percent use cases and, and make them complex for everything else. Uh, right. And I and I think the other thing that you're really kind of highlighting again with with all of this stuff is, um, you know, it's it is becoming more and more software. So, you know, even though there are, you know, physical disk drives and, and silicon and stuff somewhere underneath the covers, uh, it's, it's being exposed to software. It's being exposed as APIs. And, and at the end of the day, operations teams, infrastructure teams have to become much better software operators than, than anything else. And that's, that, that's sort of a core skill that regardless of which technology you pick and so forth, like you've got to keep coming back to going, that's a skill we've got to foster and grow and so forth. And that's that's one of the things that the SREs um, and the SRE book, the first four chapters are critical. Read those. The whole book's great, but the first four chapters lay out the point you just made, which is if you're an operator who's not thinking that they should be spending 50% of their time writing code and op- automating themselves out of a job, then you've missed this everything is software transition. Um, and that's I think that that's a big takeaway for people. We, we need to make sure that operators are freed to actually write automation that reduces the manual touch um, so that they can, they can move faster, they can accelerate. Um, yeah. Because yep. no, the, the amount of infrastructure we consume is going up, right? It's Javin's paradox right. from that perspective. Right. Well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of wrap it up there. I think awesome. uh, we, we definitely have uh, an opportunity to come back and, and talk about what some of these best practices look like. And, and we'll, we'll have to get you back on because there's a, there's a whole discussion about, you know, like, let's say 
Kubernetes is your infrastructure, but you know how much of your you know monitoring and alerting do you run on sort of dedicated clusters for that, and how much do you run for applications, or do you run them on top of each other, and all these stacks and layers and and uh, you know all that sort of stuff. So we'll have to get back into that at some point in time. Rob, what's the what's the best way for people to sort of reach out to you, find you, what's going on with RackN, all that sort of stuff? I am Zeichel Z E H I C L E on just about everything. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Nobody wants things that starts with Z, so that's me. Um, so I'm Zeichel everywhere. Rackend is rackend.com. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, Digital Rebar, which is the open source uh, side of everything we do, is rebar.digital. So we have one of those cool TLDs. Ah. Um, and that's that's pretty straightforward to find. And, and I would encourage people to check out uh, something we just released, which is Digital Rebar Provision, which is a cobbler replacement. So it's API, RESTful, you know, very clean, tiny Go app that that basically provisions servers uh, really, really cleanly. So cool. that's something fun to check out. It's a 30-minute at most exercise for people to play with on a MacBook. Excellent. Very, very cool. And, folks, we will uh, we'll put the link to the uh, the Google SRE book, which is a, an O'Reilly book. Uh, we get some discounts that we can pass along to you guys for O'Reilly stuff. So if you're interested in that, take a look. We'll put it in the show notes. And uh, for Rob and for Aaron, folks, have a good weekend, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 